Today I'd like you to take a Bible and let's open it together to 1 Samuel chapter 17 in our continuing study of the life of David. And if you didn't bring a Bible today, I'd like you to borrow the copy of the Bible that we have on the back of the seat in front of you. We're going to be on page 203, page 203 of our copy of the Bible or 1 Samuel chapter 17 in your copy of the Bible. Now, you know, it was May 1940. Hitler had invaded Belgium and the British army had rushed to Belgium's aid, just the way they had promised they were going to do. What they did not know is that Hitler had sprung a trap on them. He completely encircled the British army, 400,000 troops, and they had their back to the British Channel at a little town called Dunkirk. And it was here at Dunkirk that what is often called the miracle of Dunkirk happened. There were not enough ships in the Navy, in the British Navy, to evacuate all these people. So Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister, just had become Prime Minister again, refused to be daunted by that obstacle. He went on the radio and he called on every ship that could float that was in Britain to go help evacuate these men. Well, over the next nine days, a ragtag navy that included ferry boats, private yachts, uh, rowboats, even motorboats, uh, everything that people could take and float, uh, went across the English Channel and saved 338,000 of those troops from being captured by the Germans. When the town finally fell... In June, on June 4th of 1940, uh, 338,000 of those people had been successfully evacuated. And most analysts agree that this completely changed what could have been the outcome of World War II. Now, how do you explain the miracle of Dunkirk on the human level? Well, I explain it by simply tracing it back to the worldview of one man, the worldview of Winston Churchill. Listen to his worldview. He said, and I quote, never give in. Never give in. Never, 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 never. In nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in, except to convictions of honor and good sense. And he went on to say, I did not become prime minister in order to preside over the liquidation of the British Empire. And when President Roosevelt asks me what we need, I will tell him, give us the tools and we will finish the job in Europe. I love this guy. I love his worldview. Not enough Navy vessels? Fine. Then we'll do it with rowboats. Uh, Hitler and the German army? Fine. Give us the tools. We'll get it done. Here was a guy who had a worldview that says, hey, we know obstacles may be there, but the obstacles will not define our response. The obstacles will not define our actions. We will not be prisoners of the obstacles. Now, I do not know, to be honest with you, whether Winston Churchill had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ or not. But I do know this. I know that the worldview that this man had is the exact same worldview that God wants us as Christians to have. Uh, not a worldview of denial that says, oh, there are no obstacles there. No, no, no. But a worldview of faith that says there may be obstacles, but hey, our God is bigger than those obstacles. And whereas Winston Churchill's worldview was founded on human grit, God wants our worldview as Christians to be founded on the immenseness and the vastness of the power of Almighty God. Now, we're going to look at a guy today, a young man named David, who is a living embodiment of this worldview. 
And my hope is that after we've studied the Bible together today, that I can motivate and challenge you to take a look at your worldview and see if it needs any change in order to bring it in line with David's worldview and with the worldview that God blesses and that God honors in life. So let's look together. We're here in 1 Samuel 18. Remember the story. Let's review. The Israelite army's on one hill. The, uh, the, the Philistine army's on the other hill. And this big old nine-foot giant named Goliath would come out from the Philistine camp every morning and every evening and walk down into the valley and challenge any Israelite soldier to come out and go one-on-one with him. And it was winner take all. And for 40 straight days, there wasn't an Israelite who would go down in that valley and take him on. Suddenly, David showed up and David saw what was happening and David went, well, I'll go down there and fight him. And that's where we pick up the story. Verse 38. So King Saul dressed David in his own tunic and he put a coat of armor on him and he put his bronze helmet on his head. And David fastened Saul's sword then around the tunic and he tried walking around. But because he was not used to him and he went to Saul and said, I can't go out there in these because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Saul came to David and he said, David, look, before you go down there and fight that guy, we got to get you dressed, man. And so he went out and he brought he brought in all his heavy armor and his coat of mail and everything. And he said, here, put this on. Now, the problem was David was a 32 slim and Saul was a 52 long, you understand? And he put this big old helmet on him and the thing went clunk, came down over his eyes. He put his big old coat of mail on David and it was hanging all off of him. He looked like Dopey, you know, one of the seven dwarfs walking around. He gave him this big old sword he could hardly even lift up. And David said, Saul, I can't go out there and fight Goliath in this, man. I can't even walk in this stuff. So he took all that stuff off and then pick it up, verse 40. And instead, David went down, it says, and he chose five smooth stones out of the stream and he put them in his pouch. And this is the weapon with which he approached the Philistine. So he goes out into the valley, verse 41, and the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. And he looked at David and he saw that David was a runt. I mean, David was a shrimp and, and, and he despised him. And he said to David, am I a dog that you come out here with against me with sticks? Are you nuts? Are you out of your mind? What's wrong with you, boy? And he cursed David by his gods. And he said, you come here and I'm going to I'm going to squash you and I'm going to I'm going to take your flesh and I'm going to give it to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. I'm going to massacre you, man. Now, if you were a Las Vegas bookie, I wonder what odds you'd have given David right at this moment. Hundred to one, thousand to one, a million to one. If you were a soldier standing there watching this, would you have put money on David right at this moment? But hey, friends, let me give you some good news. When you're dealing with the living God of the universe, human odds make no difference. I love what I saw on a bumper sticker the other day. It said one plus God is a majority. And David is going to demonstrate that to you and me right now. Verse 45. And David said to the Philistine, you come against me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. How dare you this day? You're not going to kill me. You're not going to do anything to me. The Lord is going to take is going to hand you over to me and I'm going to strike you down and I'm going to cut your head off and I'm going to feed your carcass to the birds and the beasts of the field. And not just you, buddy, but I'm going to feed the carcasses of all your pals up there on a hill to the birds, too. So that all the world will know that there is a God in Israel, verse 47, and all those gathered here so that they will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord delivers for the battle is the Lord's and he is going to give all of you guys 
into our hands. Now, how can you not love this guy? How can you not love this guy's attitude? How can you not love his worldview? And he had the same worldview as Winston Churchill. Sure, he saw Goliath out there, but you see, David also saw God there. And he saw God as bigger than Goliath, as mightier than that nine-foot obstacle. And as a result, he wasn't the slightest bit intimidated by that obstacle. He said, look, there are not just two of us out here in the valley fighting Goliath. You're out here, I'm out here, and the living God is out here too. And it's the two of us against you. And you're going to lose, friend. Verse 48. And as the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle to meet him. Now, as I said last week, if I was out there against that giant and he started moving towards me, I think I would have taken a defensive posture. I think I'd have waited and let him come to me, don't you? But David was so confident, he ran to meet this guy. And he took a rock out of his bag and he put it in his sling and he slung it around and let it go. And he hit the Philistine right in the forehead and the stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. Now, he's still not dead. So if we go on and read, David, verse 51, ran over, stood over him. He took the Philistine's own sword out of his scabbard and he killed him and then he cut his head off with Goliath's own sword. And when the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, man, they turned tail and they ran and the Israelites chased him. What a great story. But he went up and killed the guy with his own sword, cut his head off, verse 54. And David took the Philistines head and brought it to Jerusalem and he put the Philistines weapons in his own tent. Can you imagine what that must have been like down there? If you were standing on that other hill and you were watching as a Philistine and you were watching this guy beat Goliath, the champion. I imagine after it was over, David turned up and looked at the Philistine army and said, hey, you guys. I got four more rocks. You got any more midgets up there? Send them down here. I'll take care of them. Anybody else you want to send down here? And they ran. Now, that's the end of the story. But, of course, it leaves us with the really important question. And what's our question? Now, you're early. You are early. Let's do it again. What's the really important question? Very good. Thanks, guys. You know... There's so much in this chapter. I wish I had more time to work on it with you. But here's the one question that intrigues me every time I read this story. Here's the question. What was it that caused David to be willing to go down into that valley and fight this giant when for 40 days not one single professional Israelite soldier would do it? They were bigger than he was, stronger than he was, had better armor than he did, and they were militarily trained. So explain how, for 40 days, not one of them would walk in the valley and why David would. Well, I think the answer is very simple. The answer is where their focus was. Every single one of these soldiers had their focus right on Goliath. David had his focus on God. In fact, if you read the chapter, it's very interesting. For the first part of the chapter, God's name is never even mentioned. The first person to even mention the word God was David when he showed up. These people weren't focused on, on, on God. They were focused on Goliath and they were paralyzed. And every time you and I focus on our obstacles, you know what the result's going to be? We're going to be paralyzed too, just like these guys were. Friends, the problem was not the size of Goliath was too big. The problem the problem is the size of their God was too small. That was the problem. David shows up with a big God and walks right out there on the field and says, this is not an insurmountable out, uh, obstacle out here. I don't care if he is nine feet tall. This is just a great opportunity for God to display his power. So let's go out here and let him do it. 
And you know what? When you look at every great man or woman of God that God has ever done anything for and ever used, you will find that they were different in so many respects except for one. The one thing that every one of those great men and women of God had in common is they had the very same worldview as David. Sure, they had obstacles, but the obstacles is not where they focused. They focused on the power and the bigness and the vastness of Almighty God to overcome the obstacle. And that's why they went on to accomplish what they did for God. Let me show you two of these folks. Turn with me, if you would, back in the Old Testament to Numbers chapter 13. It's page 105, if you're using our copy of the Bible, Numbers chapter 13. And while you're turning, let me tell you about the story here. This is where Moses sends out 12 spies to go look at the land, the promised land, the land of Canaan. Because, of course, he's instructed the Israelites, it's time to invade and take it now. And so the 12 spies, uh, two of them, we know the names of two of them, Caleb and, you know the other one? Joshua, right? And they come back. Now, as we read this story, I want you to notice the difference in worldview between the ten spies and the two spies. Between those other ten guys and Joshua and Caleb. Notice the difference in worldview and see if the worldview of Joshua and Caleb doesn't match with David's. Now, watch. Let's pick up chapter 13, Numbers 13. Pick up in verse 27. And the ten spies, here's what they say to Moses. Here comes one worldview. They said, well, we went into the land where you sent us, and it really does flow with milk and honey, and we even brought back some fruit. But the people who live in that land are powerful, Moses, and the cities are fortified, Moses, and those cities are large, Moses. We cannot do this, Moses. Second worldview. Verse 30. Then Caleb silenced the spies, and he said, we should go up. And we should take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. Back to the first worldview. But the men who'd gone up with him, verse 31, said, We cannot attack these people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. And they said, The land devours those living in it. And we were, we were like grasshoppers compared to those people in there. Man, we cannot do this. And that night, chapter 14, all the people of the community of Israel raised their voices and they wept aloud. And they all turned against Moses and Aaron and began grumbling against them. And they said, oh, if only we had died in Egypt. Bad bricks were better than this. If we'd only got stayed in Egypt, oh, we should have died. And then it got mad. They said, and we know what we're going to do. We're going to get rid of Moses and we're going to get rid of Aaron. And we're going to choose a new leader and we're going back to Egypt. Friends, listen, there will be members of the Back to Egypt Club everywhere you go in life. They will be everywhere you go, telling you you can't do this and you can't do that and this will never happen and that will never happen and it can't be done and it will never come to pass and we ought to go backwards. Let's go. We're not going forward. We're going backwards. Let's go backwards. You will meet these people everywhere you go in life. Listen to me. People who are members of the Back to Egypt Club, God has never used a single member of that club to ever do anything for God. If you're a member of the Back to Egypt Club, you're never going to do anything for God. But look at Joshua and Caleb. First, uh, let's skip down to verse 7 of chapter 14. And Joshua and Caleb quieted everybody. And they said, look, the land we passed through, gang, and explored, it's a good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, He will lead us into the land. And He will give it to us. Don't you see the difference in focus? All those other people are focused on the size of the cities and the size of the people and the size of the armies. Joshua and Caleb said, no, 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 we need to focus on God. 
and what God has told us we're going to do. Look what he says here. He says, verse 8, only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not be afraid of the people in the land because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone. The Lord has given us his promise. The Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. Now, come on, let's go. Well, you know how the story ended. They didn't go. And as a result, every single person standing there over the age of 20, every single member of the Back to Egypt Club over the age of 20 died in the wilderness. The only two people standing there over the age of 20 that ever saw the promised land were who? Caleb and Joshua. God said, I'm going to bless you guys' lives, but I'm not letting any of these members of the Back to Egypt Club go in the land. And folks, the point I'm trying to make to you is this. That if you're a Christian, God wants to do some great things in your life. If you're a Christian, God has some great and mighty things he wants to do for you. But just like he did for David, just like he did for Caleb, just like he did for Joshua. But for this to happen, we have to have the same worldview as these people. We cannot be members of the Back to Egypt Club and expect God to do for us what he did for Caleb and Joshua and Esther and Mary and all these people. He's not going to do it. And it's when we're willing to live by faith. And it's when we're willing to view every obstacle in our lives through the lens of a big God. It's then that we will see God do incredible things for us. You say, but Lon, listen, man, I got to tell you, that's Bible stuff, man. I mean, stuff happens in the Bible that just doesn't happen anymore. God did things for people in the Bible that he just doesn't do anymore. I mean, you can't take Bible stuff and say it works today. That's Bible stuff. That's old stuff. It doesn't do anything anymore. Really? You believe that? Well, no wonder you're not seeing God do more for you. God is the same God today as these people had. God hasn't changed. And God does great things today if you give him a chance. You know, I, I, uh, my oldest son, who's now a student at the Naval Academy, uh, about eight years ago when he was 13, he and I went out. We decided to do a little father-son deal. And we decided to go out to Colorado and go horseback riding for two or three days together. So we went out there. And uh, our plane was coming in on a Monday night to Denver, and there was a Monday night football game that was scheduled in Denver. I thought, this is great, man. We'll go to the Wednesday, uh, Monday night football game. This is great. So I called up the stadium, Mile High Stadium, and I said, hey, can I buy two tickets? They said, no, sorry, it's all sold out. I said, you mean to tell me you don't have two tickets? And they went, nope, Monday night football, you know, man, all sold out. So we landed and we got to rent a car and I said to Jamie, I said, you know, why don't we just drive over to Mile High Stadium? I mean, um, gosh, you know, maybe it'll be like halftime where the guards leave the door and we can just kind of sneak in the door and go in the stadium or something. I mean, we'll try. So we got into the car, we drove over to Mile High Stadium, we parked the car, and Jamie said, you know, before we go up there, we ought to pray. And I said, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's do that. So, so he bowed his head and he said, can I pray? And I said, well, sure. So he bowed his head and he said, and I bowed my head, he said, now, God... He said, I know you're real. And he said, I've always wanted to go to a Monday night football game. He said, and I know you're big enough, God, that you can get us into this football game. And about then my eyes opened and I started going, do you hear this? You better do something because you hear what's happening here. You got a 13 year old kid laying it all on the line right here, right now. You better get us in this game. And he's going in, God, I'm just going to trust you to do this. I'm looking for you to really get us in. Amen. And I'm like, yeah, amen. Amen. Right. So we walk up there and this guard is standing right at this gate. Now, there wasn't one person anywhere outside the stadium. It's not like Redskins Park down in Washington where they have vendors. and everything. There was not one person in sight in this whole place. And there was this guard standing up there. And I walked up to him and I said, um, you know, can we kind of, I mean, it's halftime. Can we kind of go in? And he said, no, you can't. And I said, well, you know, back in Washington where we're from at the Redskins games, at halftime, the guards kind of leave and they let people wander in. And he said, sir, this is not Washington. 
and you can't go in. So I said, well, is there somebody like you at, at every gate, you know, all the way around this stadium? And he said to somebody just like me, sir, and you can't go in. And I'm like, what is, what are you doing? God, why couldn't you have to go to the restroom or something right now? So we're just standing there, the two of us outside the stadium, not one person in sight, about eight o'clock on a Monday night. And suddenly, out of the stadium walks these three people. It was a lady about 50 years old, uh, her daughter maybe who was about 25 or 30, and their little, grand, their little grandchild who was about three, and you could tell had gone south. I mean, they were headed home. This kid had gone south. And I thought, hot dog, thank you, God. I got a great idea. So I went up to her and I said, ma'am, I said, um, we, we're from Virginia. And we're out here. We would love to go to a Wednesday night, I mean, a Monday night football game, but we don't have any tickets. I really, and I said, do you possibly have your stubs? Because if y'all are going home, we'll take your stubs and go in and sit in your seat. And she said, oh, she said, you know, I feel, she said, I threw my stubs away. They're on the ground. I just, I don't keep stubs. I'm like, oh, jeez. So she said, and she reaches inside this fur coat of hers and she says, but I do have two tickets we didn't use. Two $45 tickets. And she said, what will you give me for these? Now, folks, I may be saved, but I'm still Jewish. You understand what I'm saying? <laughs> and I said to her, well, ma'am, to be honest with you, we were kind of hoping on getting in free. <laughs> and she started laughing and she said, all right, here. And she hands us these two $45 tickets and she says, y'all enjoy the game. And they walk off. And there wasn't one other person before or after us that came out of that stadium. And man, I tell you, one of the greatest joys of my life was strutting up to that guard and handing him those two tickets. He was what? He watched this whole thing happen. And he, he even said to me, he said, that's the most unbelievable thing I've ever seen in my whole life. <laughs> Friends, don't tell me God doesn't live today. Don't tell me that we don't have the same God that David and Joshua and Caleb had. We have the same God. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we have the same God with the same power, who has the same passion to display that power as David had. The problem is, as Christians, we limit God. It says in Psalm 78 that the Israelites there in Numbers 13, they limited the Holy One of Israel because their God was too small. They were too focused on the obstacles. And so many times I run into Christians and our biggest problem is we're always telling God what He can't do. We're always saying, well, that can't happen and this can't happen and the other thing can't happen. And we're joining up with the Back to Egypt Club. Friends, don't tell God what He can do. Don't tell God can do anything He wants to do. And you and I, if we want to see God do great things, we've got to be like David and Caleb and Joshua and Esther and Mary and others and give God the chance. Now, if you're here and you've never trusted Christ as your personal Savior, may I say to you that the biggest obstacle in your life right now, the biggest Goliath there is in your life, is that your personal sin has disconnected you, has separated you from the living God. And because of that, you don't have eternal life and you don't have communion with God, and you don't have Him active in your life, and yet, you know what? God is so big, He's even big enough, He can overcome that problem. And that's why Jesus Christ went to the cross, to pay for your sin and my sin, so that when we trust Him, we can be reconnected with God and solve the biggest problem in our life. Friends, the rest of the obstacles in our life are just clean-up operations compared to this. And God is big enough to handle that in your life if you'll just give Him a chance. You can't handle that yourself, but God can. Give Him a chance. Just something to think about. We say, Lon, just before you close, i got two questions for you. All right? Ask them. 
Number one. Lon, are you saying that what this means is that as a Christian, if I come to God with my problems and my obstacles, if I come to God and I believe God is bigger and I confess God is bigger and I open up all the possibilities that God will do what, by, what everything I want just the way I want, just when I want, I can name it and claim it. Is that what you're saying? No. No, and the Bible doesn't say that either. You see, when it comes to God solving our problems and dealing with our obstacles, it's like a three-legged stool, friends. And the fact that we have a worldview that confesses that God is big and gives Him unlimited possibilities, that's just one leg. That's a very important leg. And what I've been trying to do here today is to convince you as a Christian never, never to limit God because of your inability to just trust Him. Don't, that's a leg you've got control over and the worldview God wants us to have is a worldview that says I will never place limits on what God can do. But there's two other legs. One of the, the second leg is the leg of God's plan for your life. God has a plan for your life and my life. And friends, part of that plan for your life and my life includes uh, development of our character and building of our character as Christians and raising us as godly children. And you know if you've ever raised children, you cannot teach character with success. Character is only taught with setbacks and heartaches and struggles in life. That's where character comes from. And that's why you can go to God and ask Him to make you healthy and wealthy and successful and never facing any kind of a setback. But it's not going to happen because God's not interested in just being Santa Claus for you. God is interested in being a heavenly Father that raises you to be a person of character and godliness. And that means some setback and some struggle and some failure and, and some heartache. And the third leg of that stool is God's prerogatives. By that I mean God has the sovereign prerogative. He reserves it for Himself to solve your obstacle any way He wants, any time He wants, in the manner that He wants, and in the manner that He knows to be best. When we go to God, we, we always tell God how we want Him to solve the obstacle, because we're always sure we know. And we say, God, I want you to do this, and I want you to do that, and I want you to do it this way, and by the way, I want you to do it now. Right now. Not tomorrow, now. But you see, friends, God reserves the prerogative to say, no, no, no. I don't want to solve it in that way, and that's not what's best for you, and I don't want to solve it now. I've got a bigger plan. So when you go to God with an obstacle, remember, you've got a three-legged stool here. God's prerogative of when and how He solves your problem, you can't change that. God's will of His plan for your life, what He's doing, trying to do in your life, and why He sometimes sends heartache your way. You can't change that. The only leg of the stool that you and I have any control over at all is the first leg, and that is our worldview, our faith. We can control that. And what I'm trying to do is to get you to the place where, where I've tried to get to to say, God, I will accept whatever limits you may put on how you solve my problems. Whatever limits you may put because of your plan for my life, I'll accept those. And whatever plan you may put because of your prerogative of how you want to do it, I'll accept that. But God, may I never limit your ability to solve my problems because I'm a member of the Back to Egypt Club. That is one thing that I can control and I will never, ever, if I can help it, God, limit what you can do. I'll do my one leg and I'll accept your two legs, but I'm never going to let my one leg be the thing that limits what God can do in my life. You understand? That's balance. He said, Lon, i got one more question. Well, hurry up and ask it. All right, here it is. Here's my question. Lon, I hear you talk about all this success stuff, and I hear you stand up there, man, and you're talking about, you know, David having success, and you go getting Denver Bronco tickets and having success. But, Lon, i got to be honest with you, man. That's not where I am. I mean, i got problems in my life, and I'm praying about them. 
I got problems in my life and I'm talking to God about them. And frankly, Lon, I'm not seeing any miracles. I, I, I feel like I'm drowning. I feel like I'm losing hope. I don't feel like God's doing anything for me. I feel like I'm going down for the third time. In fact, things have gotten worse. Not better. So, Lon, I'm having a real hard time, brother, connecting with all this success talk you're doing up there. I don't feel real successful right now in my walk with God. I don't think God's doing a lot for me. And do you understand, Lon, what it means, preacher man, to be losing hope, to be praying and not seeing God do anything and to be losing hope? Do you understand that? What do you say to me? Well, yeah, I understand that. I have a critically ill five-year-old little girl that I've prayed for for five years for God to heal her. God hasn't healed her. I've prayed for for five years for her to get better. She's gotten worse. Yeah, I understand that. I understand what it's like to go down on your knees and say, God, where are you? Why aren't you doing something here? Yeah, I understand that perfectly. And what I'll say to you is this. You know, the only way Brenda and I have made it through this is because we have a stone-cold confidence that we have a God who is so big that He's even bigger than our pain. He's even bigger than our heartache. He's even bigger than the tragedy in our life. And that He's big enough that He can take even the tragedy and the heartache in our life and He can give it purpose and He can redeem it and He can still use it for the glory of God and He can still use it for our personal development and He can still use it as a blessing to us and to our family that He's so big that He just doesn't have to be big to send success. He's even bigger than pain. And He can redeem it and turn it into positive things in our lives. And friends, if you've got a lot of pain in your life, let me tell you something. Your God is bigger than your pain. And if you keep telling yourself what God can't do and you keep joining the Back to Egypt Club when it comes to your pain, you're only hurting yourself. Turn it loose and give it to God and let God take it and let God redeem it. God is bigger than the divorce your parents had. God is bigger than your husband or your wife walking out on you. God is bigger than you losing your job. God is bigger than your health problems. God is bigger than your problems with your children. God is bigger than your problems at school. God is bigger. Don't join the Back to Egypt Club. You stay with Joshua and Caleb. You stay with David. You give God free reign. And I promise you, my friend, God will take even the tragedies in your life and He'll turn them into a blessing. And if you don't believe it, just pick up the book and read about how He did it for lots of other people. You say, well, Lon, where am I going to get this big God? Where am I going to go to get a big God like this? Like you talk about you having, or David and Caleb and Joshua had. You know where you go to get it, friends? Well, I'll tell you where you won't get it. You won't get it from Dan Rather in the evening news. You're not going to get it from reading Time and Newsweek. God knows you're not going to get it from reading the Washington Post. You know that. If you want a big view of God, you've got to go somewhere where God's putting Himself on display for you. If you want a big view of God, you've got to go somewhere where God's showing you who He is. And that's called the B-I-B-L-E, friends. God wrote the Bible in large measure to tell you who He is. And there's lots of stories in here that show you what happens when you will take an approach to God like David and Caleb and Joshua took, and even through pain and heartache what God did for people. So if you want that big view for God, i got a simple piece of advice to you. Get into the Word of God and let God show you who He is, and then believe Him. It's just that simple. And then let God change your worldview. Take, go home, take your membership card in the Back to Egypt Club and burn it. And say, I am never joining that club again. Right now, I'm joining the Joshua, Caleb, Mary, Esther, David Club. And all those other people, Abraham, put them in there. That's the club I want to be a part of. 
Because that's the club where God moves and that's the club where God blesses. And that's where I want to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we reflect upon what we saw you do for David today, thank you for reminding us that you are the same God as you were for David today, for us. And Lord, forgive us for the many, many times where we limit you because we're so focused on our obstacles like these soldiers of Israel were that we're intimidated by them and we're paralyzed by them. Thank you for the example of David and Joshua and Caleb who were focused on God, not problems, and who didn't see problems and obstacles as insurmountable, but only as opportunities for God to display His power. Make that our worldview, Lord, so that we can unleash everything you want to do for us. And even through the pain that we go through, even through the difficult times, Lord, may we never give up the confidence that you are bigger even than the pain and that if we'll leave it with you, you will redeem even the tragedies in our life because you are bigger than they are. Change the way we live by what we've heard here today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.